0: to Common Threads, produced by Artifacts, the podcast that brings tailors together through open and authentic conversation. We post new episodes periodically, talking with tailors, merchants, and other businesses that make up the sartorial world. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Enjoy the show.
1: Dubbed the millennial bespoke tailor by no less than Women's Wear Daily, Paolo Martirano, while still young, boasts a singularly auspicious body of experience. As the grandson of both a master tailor and a seamstress, Paolo's inclination to the bespoke world was something of a double legacy birthright. Prior to attending the Fashion Institute of Technology, where he graduated with a degree in textile science, he began his career while still a teenager by garnering an internship with Alan Flusser. He followed that with a seven-year stint in the custom clothing department at the legendary Madison Avenue flagship of Paul Stewart, where he helped to quadruple their made-to-measure and bespoke operations, only leaving to assume the position of manager of bespoke and made-to-measure in North America at Dunhill. In 2017, at the urging of several customers, he took, by his own admission, the immense step of starting his own label, Paolo Martirano Bespoke. So this whole kind of, this thread that we've uh, been talking on here kind of makes me think about the business side and that was something that i was interested in talking to you about is really the business of tailoring and um you know it's an expensive suit it's an expensive vest whatever it is that you're buying um so all of your costs are going to be high as well so do you think you know yourself uh, now having run your own business for a little bit of time is it uh profitable like is is being a tailor and being owning a shop, tailor shop and especially doing benchmade things like real benchmade, is that sustainable? You know, if like if I imagine if you were like let's say you're you know, you haven't uh, you don't have your brand and you were before a few people looking for some type of angel investment, what would you say to them? I mean, could you say anything about the profitability and, and the upside?
2: Mm. Well, yeah, the scalability and bespoke tailoring is I mean, you know, look at look at everyone, you know, in the business, <laughs> how much have they changed in 200 years? <laughs> not very much. Um, has They've downsized, if anything. Um, I mean, my goals and aspirations are, are not tremendously different than what I do now. You know, would I like to have maybe a showroom that's slightly different and what I'd like to be able to get some permits from the city to be able to do different manufacturing on site and you know maybe hire another salesperson or something like that. Yeah, they're, they're very small aspirations that I have. I mean I've, I've seen there's a lot of people in this business who overexpanded way too fast and they got investments and they realized they couldn't scale their business very well um i mean that's why the mate the high-end made to measure people you know they can really scale their businesses bigger and bigger because they're relying on factories it's difficult as you were saying when you're doing things on you know bench made and you have coat makers and trouser makers and not a vendor who just ships everything to you done uh and bills your credit card for it it's uh it's difficult um I mean, in the U.S., we, we lack the training resources that Europe and the U.K. have. So that's, that's, a, that's a difficult thing to deal with here is you don't have a constant revolving door of new people coming in to be trained at a school. You know, there's, there's people in Europe that are starting to reach out to American businesses to try to make things for them and
1: stuff. I've heard more about that. Kind of other other tailor shops making for other tailor shops. Exactly,
2: but, yeah. Pe- people in markets that have have suffered pretty badly that are not recuperating as quickly. Um, I mean, one of our differences is we do advertise quite a bit, and we we've we've booked for us a pretty aggressive ad campaign for fall and winter. Um, in warmer climates, of course. We're, because that's where the money's going, um, so yeah. I mean, we we try not to take, try not to buy off more than we can chew. I mean, one example is that you know we will turn down certain things that just don't make sense for us. I started out in the shirt business as the custom shirt director for Paul Stewart. So I thought when I opened my business, I would just do shirts and some trousers to supplement that business. Shirts are now the smallest part of my business, which is ironic. Uh, Tailored clothing is the majority of the business. Trousers are are the number one category because we really crank those out quickly with our own people. But, you know, for example, a guy came in to see me in Miami and he just bought a couple of shirts and... The amount of fittings he wanted and everything—it was just, it was just not worth it. We were not going to make any money on this. So I politely said, "Listen, here's a refund. You keep the sample shirt, but I have guys who have five suits and works, ten suits and works. Those guys need my attention, and I, I you know, for shirt, it's just, it's four hundred fifty dollars." I have people that have six-figure deposits on orders. I need to give these people attention. That $450 shirt, I said, you know, you'd be better off going to a good, ready-to-wear store that has made-to-measure shirts in your case, and uh, this person never went to a tailor before. They they were going to like Neiman's and Saks and places like that. They were not interested in buying suits, not interested in buying jackets. And I said, "Listen, I'm happy to make your shirts, but you gotta buy clothes for me." Um, so that's kind of become our new policy. Is well, and now you, you have a minimum order, right? Yeah, I mean, everyone has a minimum order, but you know, I mean, how how useful is that? <laughs> you know, if someone comes in and you know, for in in many uh, economic climates of late, you're not going to turn down a sale, but right now with the way things have been in a, in a good way um, it's just not something we can do and it's not that I don't want the business it's just it, it just I doesn't make give sense it. yeah and the way I presented it to that particular customer is everyone deserves the same level of, of attention from me the same level of service and I said this experience does not reflect me because I'm used to giving people a lot more dedication now He also missed an appointment, so.
1: (laughs) That probably didn't put you in a good mood, though.
2: Exactly. So, but it was just a way to say, you know, seriously, I mean, we don't want to give anyone a bad experience. We want everyone to say, oh, Paolo's a nice guy. The tailors were nice. The garment is great. We want everyone to have a good level of experience. So, personally, for me, I'd rather charge a premium to give the best product and the best service I can give you. And and that's why I don't have made-to-measure. I don't have a stock size program. We we tried ready-to-wear out last winter. We did great with our pajamas. I mean, those did great. But most people said, I want to make my own pajamas. I don't want to buy ready-to-wear pajamas. So we ended up selling the ready-to-wear pajamas. Uh, quickly and then just started making custom pajamas and we didn't bother reordering ready to wear pajamas because it just wasn't worth it we can make them in three weeks so it just you know why have inventory when you can just order them quickly for people and dressing gowns and all those other stuff the boxers etc so yeah I mean our business is just limited to bespoke tailoring the clothing sportswear shirts and you know, just sticking with what I'm good at, and what I know we can deliver at a great quality level, and made-to-measure something where we've always been thinking about it because I have a lot of experience with it. Um, but just the right moment, the right vendor, uh, it'll come at the right time. So far, my timing's been very good. So well, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that continues,
1: and um, yeah, knock on wood. One thing that I kind of thought about while you were, you were talking was about the advertising and and marketing side. I've never, you know, I've never heard anybody talk about advertising and marketing in, in tailoring. Um, and I think partially that's probably because you have guys who, uh, get into ownership like yourself and you have guys who get into ownership who are tailors. Mm-hmm. And so the tailors never talk about marketing and the, all the tailors are in the UK or in Europe. So, uh, you know, they're not going to really really be focusing on advertising or the client as somebody in, in the U.S. might. So is there something that, you know, if you were going to advise a tailor, and I know it's not in your best interest to, to advise other tailors <laughs> on how to sell, <laughs> but if you were going to advise somebody who has their own shop on adver- advertising and marketing, what's kind of the direction or at least the philosophy that you would, uh, inject into their, into the business? Or, or, I mean, you can obviously talk about your own business. What's the philosophy that you use?
2: Yeah. I mean, it was something that I got into at Paul Stewart and my marketing director is the former chief marketing officer of Paul Stewart. So I'm very lucky that I have a professional that can handle these things for me. and, and, has my best has the best interests of the brand and, and me in mind um the thing that i've realized works is customers prospective customers want to see the finished product very few people who buy bespoke tailoring know care need to know want to know that things are padded by hand or or even cut by hand i mean I know it always sounds shocking to people, but you know, I'm sure if you poll most customers in many of the greatest tailor shops around the world, they couldn't tell you the difference between something that was made by hand, something that was made by a machine. A lot of what they care about is, yeah, you know, this tailor makes a great shoulder. I love the shoulder of this person. I love how lightweight this garment is. I love how, how uh, stiff this garment is. It makes me feel... Dressed up. It makes me feel erect and like a man. Um, the, you know, it's, you really have to show people the same thing that a designer brand would show them. Uh, I've heard a lot of tailors say, we're competing with ready to wear for the first time. And they're, they're, they're right. A lot of the people who come to see you are wearing ready to wear, sometimes they're wearing junk. Ready to wear suiting? Yeah. Um, but with there's a lot of great high end ready to wear. You got Adelini, Brioni, Keton. Then you have all those kind of more niche brands that you find at the Armory, the Ring Jackets and Oratsu, Luciana, stuff like that. It's a little bit more esoteric, but fantastic value products. You're competing with that stuff now. And you're able to buy something very nice off the rack for sometimes very good prices. And you have customers that want things very quickly. So you
1: do have to factor that stuff uh, in to your marketing strategy. So when you think about these like these adjectives when you're talking about the tailoring, you're thinking this is a really nice – like maybe you're, you know, you're looking at a ketone ready-to-wear and you're thinking this is a really nice product. You're th- are you thinking about it as though you are the business owner, or are you thinking about it as I'm the customer and I'm viewing this and I'm thinking, "Wow, this is great value for my money." I, I
2: always view things as the customer, and as my marketing director was saying to me, I, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say it the exact way because I don't want to <laughs> don't want to offend anyone either. You basically you have to always consider that nothing's obvious whether you're making a website, like my website, I put in a lot of money. I hired a really great web designer who came from a very famous menswear mecca, not going to name names. uh, And he really helped me out. And he was great to work with. And we wanted to make it very user friendly, because you do have a lot of people who call you up. And it's the secretariat. Goldman Sachs, and she says, uh, "I have Mr. So and So on the line for you. He's interested in making an appointment." And they told their secretary or their assistant to go online and find me a tailor that you know makes real bespoke clothing. And I mean, believe it or not, that's how a lot of people make appointments for bespoke tailoring is something like that. They'll have their assistant call a bunch of people and get information for them. So we wanted to make things very user-friendly. You know, you get a lot of messages on like Instagram, it's like, where are you located? And it's like, really, (laughs) where am I? Okay, it's on the profile, it's on the website, it's on Google maps, it's everywhere, you know, or the people who commented like, how much is the suit? And it's like, if you're gonna buy a $7,500 suit, you're not gonna write that in public you know, especially a bespoke suit. Um, but I always think of things like the customer. Um, you know, for example, you mentioned Keton and you know, that's always been one of the popular things for tailors to compare themselves to, but I think, I think Adelini is more of a, a good com- competition to bespoke. Adelini has acquired a lot of bespoke customers, people who used to go to tailors, uh, because they make, they make a great garment, they have a great pattern that fits a lot of people, great fabric and quality. Um, I have a customer, his name is David. I'm, shout out to David, he'll be upset if I don't mention to him. Uh, the last time I mentioned him, I didn't mention his name. and He's like, hey, where are you gonna mention my name? I'm not gonna say his last name, because I don't. <laughs> maybe he doesn't want me mentioning his full name. But David's from Los Angeles, or he's, his business was in Los Angeles. He's a well-respected interior designer, very successful. And he was going to Giacomo Trablaza, one of the legendary tailors in Los Angeles. Giacomo made him a lot of clothes. Uh, Giacomo retired, closed his business. Uh, he, I think he also went to Jack Taylor. I mean, those are real old references for Los Angeles. Um, so, he started going to Keton. Well, yeah, that's a pretty expensive jump, even from a bench tailor to buy Keton. So he found me during a trunk show and he's like, let's, let's try a jacket. So we, we made him a jacket and, you know, went through the fittings. And by the, by the third fitting, he was like, Oh, this is, let's, let's get a couple of more jackets going. Cause I, I like where we're headed. And we did that. And he was now we're, I think we're up to the 15th jacket in six months. And I think something like 60 shirts, He's already ordered. And he's like, you know, a good example of someone that was a bespoke customer since he was a a really young guy, starting out in his field in Los Angeles. And because his tailor retired, he ends up going to buy a really good high end ready to wear and made to measure, and then ends up back in bespoke. But it's scary, and some people won't believe it. You know, there's a lot of customers that have been lost to good ready-to-wear and even good made-to-measure. Um, so there, there's a so real-world example. come in
1: and then also go out again. They'll, they'll, maybe they'll come from ready-to-wear and then maybe they'll leave bespoke.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I remember a particular retail store that's very, very high-end, very esoteric They're in the West. They said to a bespoke tailor, you know, a lot of your customers come to our store and they buy keton jackets off the rack. They're in a in a vacation area. This this store. So maybe you should come and do trunk shows at our store. We could make a ready-to-wear line with your name on it for our store. But you know, we've noticed a lot of your guys come here. and They buy these ten thousand dollar off-the-rack jackets, and um, it dawned on the tailor, kind of like, really? They do that? Like. But we make them close. Well, yeah, they, they tell us you don't make you know you're not pushing enough sport jackets and stuff, and mm-hmm. they end up buying their sport jackets off the rack. Now, fast forward ten years after I heard that anecdote, um, Mills, especially Laura Piana, Carlo Barbera, uh, Harrisons uh, has done a pretty good job, um, many drapers, which is one of my go-tos. They've done a lot better at capturing trends and putting it into bespoke, you know, cut length business. Um, so even though, you know, trends and fashion is not a word that we like in our business, I'm glad that the mills are paying attention to what they do for their ready to wear customers like Keton and Adelini, et cetera, and giving us in the cut length business more of those kind of options. Hmm. And that's dramatically, I think, helped the bespoke business. Because if you look at our Instagram, you see the kind of sport jackets we make, we're very much capturing what is popular at the moment in, you know, Italian sportswear and, you know, other, you know, French sportswear and stuff. So.
1: So that allows you to compete with ready to wear.
2: And yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And now we have a lot of people that come in and they go, "Here's a picture of a jacket from such and such. I saw it in Rob Report, or I saw it in Departures, or I saw it in Centurion Magazine, wherever it's from. Do you have that fabric? Can you find that fabric?" And for the first time in my career, you can. If you can't find the exact fabric, you can find something in the same realm. I remember a couple of years ago, a guy showed me a pink glen plaid and it was like i don't i don't know where to like i could find a twe like i found a w bill one that was tweed but this guy was showing me some silk and linen one i was like i don't i don't know fast forward i own that jacket now i have a pink linen and silk plaid jacket <laughs> and so does the customer so um yeah there are some great things to embrace and the technology of fabric changing. I mean, my, my degree from the fashion Institute of technology is textile science. So um, the way that I explain fabric to the customer with a degree in textile science, it helps because there are a lot of people who have told me that, you know, when they're shown a suit fabric or a jacket fabric, they don't really know anything about the fabric. You know, the tailor just kinda said, This this is very popular for us. It's a twofold one twenties, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I can really give them the romance and the song and dance that goes with that fabric that they'll enjoy. And I've never had someone say that they regretted their fabric choice. And you know, I've tried a lot of stuff out, so I've been able to show people the things that I think are gonna work for them and their climate and stuff. And when I do my trunk shows, I, I normally stick to the same places because they've been very good for me. So I've got to know that client base very well. What works in Miami does not work in Palm Beach versus Jacksonville or Orlando. Um, you have, you know, different things that are gonna work for those markets. Palm Beach, people are gonna their taste is going to be very English for the most part. With a lot of Naples thrown in there, too, because they love color and stuff. And then when you go to Coral Gables, people dress a lot more like New York. They wear pinstripe suits and French cuff shirts and black captoe shoes. It's it's a lot more like Wall Street there. And when you go to the beach, Miami Beach or Bell Harbor or something like that, people are dressed a little bit more like, you know, kind of Laura Piana chic, Riviera-style stuff. So...
1: Well, it's interesting. It sounds like there's kind of like this almost a philosophical or moral debate I feel like that probably tailors go through or if they're not going through it maybe they should about ready to wear. Like just you're just like you were talking about where you'll have, you know, Holland and Sherry or whatever, they come out with these bunches that maybe perceived more as a fashion fabric and you know, hopefully you're getting a good design with also a good make in the fabric that's gonna tailor well if you're gonna have something made in, a, in a, any tailor by any tailor or any type of bespoke shop uh, so it's almost like this like this philosophical argument of or conflict and that the tailor is trying to make something that's of extremely high quality right but at the same time it is a business and so you're trying to capitalize on the trends of a market and where um, and where you fit into that market because there is some overlap between bespoke and ready to wear and made to measure it's not These aren't just silos of industries that are completely uh, separate from the others. And I think a lot of people have – or a lot of tailors have issues with that. You know, like, I'm making this really high-quality product, so it needs to stand the test of time, and it needs to always be elegant and always stylish. Is that – do you think that's kind of overrated? I don't know if that makes sense or not. I mean, (laughs) I just say that because there's sort of – it's just a paradox, right? You know, you're trying to make these really high-quality and elegant garments – but at the same time, you're chasing fashion. You're chasing Malibic fashion too. to a certain <laughs> degree. And I'm not talking about you specifically. I'm talking about in general. And actually I heard something recently about, um, who was it? It was Karl Lagerfeld. He did this really cool YouTube video some years ago where he's drawing designs from Fendi that uh, he made. And and while he's doing it, he said something like, if you ask me what fashion uh, is, I don't know, but uh, looking 30 years back. Uh, behind, I can tell you exactly what it is, and so uh, I thought that was something that I thought was really interesting, and and plays into this paradox kind of that I'm that I'm talking about of you want to be perceived as elegant, and you want your clothes to stand the test of time, and that is what part of what you're selling, but you also in, in these social situations that you're with with your friends and family and and your coworkers and everybody, you want to be perceived as part of society and as part of the trends and moving forward, right?
2: Yeah, and I think, well, things have just changed so much in the past few years in this industry. I mean, a lot of this is very new for the industry. As far as fabric weaving is concerned, you mentioned Holland & Sherry, uh Skabal is another example. These big design houses that do a lot of made-to-measure wholesale for fabric. there A lot of it is for the made-to-measure guys because they could turn around things quicker at lower prices. So, you know, in that end of the industry, I think most of those fabrics are probably geared towards those guys versus tailors, you know. But as far as bespoke is concerned, with lifestyles changing so much, there are those customers that say, you know, if you can make me jeans, you can make me some kind of, you know, outerwear piece, a quilted vest, or uh, you, you invent something. I mean, Alex and I have literally invented things for people that they were kind of like <laughs> spitting ideas, trying to f- figure something out, and they wanted to be surprised. Um, it's, it's, so it's it's a combination of wanting to literally keep us busy. I mean, there there are some people that they rather just give the tailor business than the Laura Piana business. I mean, you know, an example I've probably mentioned before is we had a guy buy a double. It was a reversible quilted vest that Alex made, and one side was Laura Piana storm system, but it was a hundred percent wool. It was like a one eighties. So it was ridiculous. And the other side was like a four-ply Joshua Ellis cashmere. And the vest was like $6500 retail. And the client said, "This is a great value because I went to Loro I looked at the same idea, and you know, it was $11,000 or whatever." And the guy was able to say, "You know, I'd like a pocket here because I want to golf in this vest." Um, and this guy, along with another guy, a young customer in his 30s in L.A., we've made a few golf vests for them. And we've made it in like wool, silk, and linen from Marling and Evans and like herringbones and stuff. I mean, really interesting concepts that are a lot different from what you're going to see in Ready to Wear from Cuccinelli and Piana and those kind of companies. Um yeah, I mean, the people who've come up with those concepts, and I can think of people like Gives um, like and Hawks, the, the gentleman who's the head cutter. I've seen him do some unbelievable sportswear made by him. Um, if you can present things like that to the right kind of customers, I mean, they're going to be like, I'll take it in every color. <laughs> you'll get a lot of business from them, and you'll feel proud that you invented something unique for that customer Uh, and then you have other people that struggle with those kind of outside the box ideas and it's interesting because if you really dive into vintage clothes like i have and you like to collect old bespoke pieces some tailors had a lot more creativity than they have now so it's uh you know it's kind of survival of the most creative (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, and that was interesting that you brought up David Taub, the cutter for yeah, GM's that's dogs. his name. Yeah, because I remember seeing that jacket as well, and I've talked with so many tailors, even on the podcast here, and they've mentioned him as kind of a design influence and as a tailoring influence. They so they're like, oh, he's doing some kind of, you know, he's introducing some more creative elements to what he's making, and and I know he made that uh, driving jacket. I don't know if it was for, uh, if it was for a Bentley or Rolls Royce. Promotion thing they were doing, but he designed that driving jacket. I don't know if you're familiar with it. He's had multiple things that he's designed, and he has his his own blog that he posts those things on, and just very cool creations because it's they're at this intersection of design and craftsmanship and uh, style as well. It's like you know you're not just buying a stiff garment from Huntsman or wherever it is. That's you know that's just struck out every day. It's something that's very very interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, some customers really react well to these proposals and ideas.
1: Is that do you think kind of going to be the saving grace of bespoke as uh, as made to measure and ready to wear progress?
2: Uh, it'll be one thing that certainly helps <laughs> keep people busy. Um, there's no question during the you know height of the lockdown era, whatever you want to call it, because we're still in the thick of things. Um, but those early days, you know, March, April, May of 2020, where things were really locked down and stuff, customers were really trying to brainstorm, and some of the things we created were from the brainstorming with those customers, um, different vests and trousers and, and the things like that. If you know, some people say that things are all going to get worse for the suit business, I mean, who knows? Um, A lot of people would agree with me when I say that 2019, things were really looking hopeful. I mean, early 2020, up until March, I mean, we did almost as much business as we did all of 2019. I mean, we were just like, it was busy. And we really were like, wow, it's things are really looking hopeful for the future. And then there was a setback, but... I mean, you—it's a—it's a mixture. It's hard to hard to make any kind of predictions, but I do think that a very important thing for the bespoke business is, like you said, it's the versatility in design, versatility in what you're going to make. Um, I think there's going to be very few people who are going to survive just on doing suits and shirts. I mean, there will be those people in Italy that can do that. I can already predict who I think those people would be. There will be those people in London. We can predict who they will be. And then there will be the people who create those interesting items that will get a new customer through the door or get a guy who just doesn't need to buy suits anymore to keep buying. Because most of these people who are old customers who want to buy these new designs are guys who – they like having that relationship, and they 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 don't want to lose that relationship. You know, I hear from people who are retired, and they don't need to buy things as much anymore. They they kind of want an excuse to come and buy clothes. So
1: it's almost like the 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 pandemic was kind of like a giant thin think tank for for uh, for you in particular. It sounds like.
2: I mean, there was. Uh, f- yeah, you know, it was a horrible period that I wish never happened for many yeah. reasons for all of us. But there was a lot of brainstorming. There was a lot of sitting in the backyard thinking about things and what people could do. And there were a number of businesses that thought about what they could change about themselves to, you know, stay uh, stay busy, <laughs> exist, stay relevant, in the future, yeah. stay relevant. I, I have a, a, you know, get a lot of information about what goes on over on Savile Row because I share my shop of Gaziano and Gerling. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel for the people over in Savile Row. I don't, you know, they're not as lucky as some of us in America and Italy have been with, you know, more active tourism industry.
1: Well, and especially their style, the styling on Savile Row, I think, at least in my mind and in- and, you know, the American style is more based on uh, English style, I think, more than Italian. But nonetheless, I don't think of Ita- or English style when I think of uh, pandemic and lockdown. You know what I mean? It seemed, it's far less versatile than if you're going to talk about uh, Monica Camicia from, from Naples that's at,
0: much more comfortable to wear casually. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by subscribing now. If you have any thoughts or comments, please feel free to share them with us on Instagram, Facebook, or directly on our website at discoverartifacts.com. Now, back to the show. Yeah.
2: I had a, I had a gentleman call me yesterday. And when I gave him a call back because he was interested in making an appointment, I said, so why us you know is there is there more uh of you know, more persuasion you need as to you know why you want to see us versus someone else and they said well you know i i'd like something like tweed you know something kind of hardy rustic that i can wear at home i think he was kind of envisioning that phantom thread tweed jacket with the pajamas underneath kind of look and you know i don't want to have to wear a tie or necessarily a dress shirt and So he named someone else that he was interested in. I said, well, I said, you know, by all means, if you want to go there, you're certainly not going to get bad quality or anything. I have nothing negative to say. But I said, if you're looking for a casual sensibility, I said, I think I could execute that a little bit better than these other people could. And this is why. And the guy said, oh, well, you know, (laughs) I don't really know enough about clothes to realize that. But, you know, now that you point that out, you're right. You know, it is a little bit stiff. Uh, I think I would be a little bit more comfortable wearing a softer garment. I said, "Well, you know, we could make a, a more unconstructed cut. You know, we can give you this camicha, monica comitja, whatever the right phraseology is for it." <laughs> I'm not. I, I, I think it's become a little too popular. Um, you know, there's there's it's few quite tailors. Yeah. It's yeah, exactly you have you have Chinese factories that have done an unbelievable job cranking it out. And it's become something you can find, you know, look at Suit Supply. I think all their suits have that now. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Um, there's a particular coat maker in New York who uh, was trained at Adelini. So he happens to know how to do it very well. Um, and there's another, Raphael, who we were talking about earlier, he was one of the first people to do that shirt sleeve shoulder in the United States long before it was popular.
1: Do you, when do you think that was? Was that in the 80s?
2: Yeah. Um, well, he only started his business about 1990 because he was working for Alan Flusser before that. Uh, um, that's he, right,
1: because Alan was doing – they were doing Benchmade back then, right? I think you had said.
2: No, it was more recent they were doing Benchmade. There was oh, okay. In the early 2000s, they had about you know, five or six tailors at the shop and there were, you know, people that came from like Morty Sills and all these old school tailor shops and uh most of those guys are unfortunately are no longer with us anymore from what I've heard. Um few of those people have moved on to other places where they're making bench made clothes. Um but yeah, Raphael was doing a a really there's a I was we were talking about his client list with a a client of mine who worked with a lot of lawyers who used to go to Raphael. So we were talking about some of his famous customers. <laughs> we were kind of comparing notes on what we thought about the clothes. Um, but yeah, it's well, back to what I was saying about that. This guy who called me, I was, you know, gave him the pitch as to why I thought I could deliver something that was a little bit more sporty and casual for him for what he was looking for. So, you know, my my Bitcoin guy, he also, his last order for these tweed jackets, which are all from Piana Seasonal Box, so they were very soft and they had silk in them, and very comfortable. He did some moleskin pants and things like that. And he's like, so this moleskin feels unbelievable. I said, well, basically think of like a really expensive pair of sweatpants because that's what they feel like. They're just unbelievable, and I have, I have a few people that have tried moleskin, didn't know what it was, and they were like, wow, it's like wearing bespoke sweatpants. <laughs> it's fantastic, <laughs> and they were like, okay, I want all these colors.
1: Now, do you ever work with uh, like a personal stylist or personal shoppers or anything like that? I've never heard of any, anything like that. I've, I haven't heard of it in the bespoke side. I don't know if it's just because of you really need the client there.
2: Yeah, I've I've had some encounters with those people. Um, some of the TV personalities I work with have those people. They come from the network, or they're a subcontractor of a network. Because the corporations pay for the clothes, since it's a business business expense, so they come from you know all the big networks NBC will have someone or whatever, Yeah, exactly. They'll have so yeah, especially the sports industry, you know, there's a lot of advertising money in the sports and that's a little bit different because those guys get like big advertising contracts with Samuelson and Canali and Xenia. Um, yeah, I mean, the people I deal with are more of the you know, politics people, the kind of headline evening, you know, eight o'clock, 10 o'clock slot people. Um, that have big advertising budgets and stuff that they're able to buy clothes for.
1: What do you think about those advertising campaigns that you'll see, you know, like Brioni with Robert De Niro and it's always a dream
2: to get one of those from a, (laughs) from a marketing point of view. I mean, yeah, yeah, if you can, I mean, everyone has always wanted to be, you know, like think of the credit roll at, um, for wall street, you know, Suits by Alan Flusser, shirts by Alex Cabaz, uh, shoes by Ferragamo. I mean, someone who works with me has a great story. They saw Douglas Fairbanks Jr. in a play. And the um, playbill, it wasn't a playbill because it wasn't on Broadway, said, uh, Mr. Fairbanks wardrobe. Suits, Anderson Shepard. Sportswear, Anderson and Shepard. Shoes, Maxwell's. Uh, of london it, it was like uh jewelry Patrick philippe i mean it was like where would you see that today i was like you know and, and that's legitimate i mean I, I believe the story the person told you know so yeah i mean it's your dream to get advertising like that everyone wants that i mean phantom thread was certainly great publicity for anderson and Shepard. um i forgot the name of the there was a Big movie that Adelini got a ton of business from recently. I'm Blocking the name of the movie. Um,
1: I'm not sure what it is, but it, I mean, at this point, we could definitely bring up like Huntsman as well, you know. Oh, the, yeah, sure. Kingsman yeah.
2: Forgot about that. that yeah. Huge one. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Alan Flesser with Wall Street. Um, yeah. He's still getting business from that. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, Len Logsdale, obviously, with, you know, all the movies Len has done. Len has done a great job with the movies. I mean, He's become the king of the movies.
1: Well, and at that point, it doesn't even seem like you're selling to a specific client. You're not selling to the person necessarily. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You're selling to, you know, the 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 production company is buying the suits, and then you're getting referred from production company to production company, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a story I heard, and I've heard of a few kind of like this, where the actor likes it so much they want to keep the clothes. Or another actor is jealous of the clothes of the main star. Um, I've heard heard some stories like that where, you know, the uh, supporting actor is like, why, why does he get all the custom clothes? I, I want to go to the tailor, too. So I've heard some stories like that before. Yeah, it's it, I think that's the... One of the next steps for my business is probably movie work. We've had some conversations in Los
1: Angeles about that stuff already. So, well, so movie work next. What are some of the other next steps that you see as kind of the next? You know, the building blocks.
2: Luck. It's, it's a <laughs> lot of luck and timing.
1: <laughs> well, no, but think about—I mean, all the time that you spent at Paul Stewart and uh, and, with, and with Alan Flusser and then at Dunhill. I mean. All of that has culminated in what you're what you're doing right now and you've done what what any good business minded person would do is that when people are telling you, Hey, go start your own business, you went and did it. You know, that's when you really know that you have something, I think, is when and all your clients are telling you, start your own business and you did it. I mean that's the that's how you do it, right?
2: It reminds me when I was having vendors and I mean, I have a lot of customers who have been CEO of Saks Fifth Avenue, CEO of Neiman Marcus, CEO of LVMH. Um, when these people were telling me, you should start your own business. Do, do it while you're young. You can do it. Yeah. You know, what, what do you have to lose? You don't have a non-compete. You don't have you don't have any of these legal things to worry about. Go and do it. Um you know, I was, my own ego was like, well, maybe you know, I kind of want to be an executive. I'd like to be CEO of Saks Fifth Avenue one day or something like that. And meanwhile, retail has just changed so much. I, I would never want to be a part of that anymore because it's not what it once was. Um, there's no room for taste anymore <laughs> or elegance anymore. Uh, I remember going to Italy and I went into Rubinacci in Milan. And there was Luca Rubinacci. Hey, how are you? <laughs> Thank you for coming in. And it was like you have to do the hello everybody. That's hello <laughs> everyone. That's my warm up when I make the Instagram videos. I, I warm up uh, doing that. Um, but there he was, working the store, merchandising, in and out of the tailor shop, working with customers, being the store, yeah, running the store. Here was this celebrity face of the brand, and we had a conversation. He he wouldn't remember me, I'm sure, but we were we were chatting, and I was thinking to myself while talking to him. He's very friendly. I'd love to see him again sometime. <laughs> I think everyone likes him who meets him. I have customers who like him too. I mean, likable person. Um, I thought, you know. Here's a guy who, I mean, listen, he's kind of become a little bit of a celebrity. I think he knows that. He has, he has a lot of fun. He, he comes from a great family of taste and success. And, you know, they've, they've just had a wonderful legacy in Italy. And he's working. He goes and does the trunk shows. He travels the world hustling for the brand and growing the business. And he's not, you know, resting on the laurels of the success that they've had. He's out there doing what he can to support the business, support the family. And I thought, okay, you know what? There's nothing wrong with being the proprietor of a business, especially a custom business. I could get the perks of it because we all, we all want to be successful. You know, I'd hope so. It will drive us. If we, to want something. Um, you can have fun. You can work hard. You can have to have those late nights. And I thought he was just a great example. And after I met him, I thought, it really gave me this enthusiasm to start my own business. Um, so, yeah, he, little does he know. <laughs> that, that, the, the little conversation one afternoon. Yeah, so I, when I went back to New York, I was like, okay, I'm going to quit my job. And start my business and one month later i opened up my business um i mean there was more preparation than that i mean it was obviously always in the cards it was in the cards for a few years i mean i i was planning you know i i left paul stewart a few years after the takeover from their new parent company happened and the management changed and the family was no longer part of running the business and i had gotten you know, I heard, heard rumblings that they were basically going to have, you know, every contract bidded on by a new vendor, you know, whoever made the best offer for the best price for everything. So, you know, my shirt business could be gone overnight because someone comes in with a better price for a cut, make and trim or a better deal. Um, it became a very corporate environment. So what did I do? I went to a real corporate environment, Richemont. <laughs> yeah. Fight fire with fire. And um, that gave me more of that Savile Row experience that, of course, an American would only dream of having. But when I took the interview there, they are like, you know, we'll send you to London, we'll send you to Italy, we'll send you to Poland. Well, you know, you'll be learning from real people who are real tailors. And, you know, you, I'm sure you've always wanted that experience. And I was hired by an old Ralph Lauren executive. And
1: what was that position for, exactly?
2: That was to be the manager of bespoke made-to-measure for the U.S. market. So wasn't it really what I expected, <laughs> needless to say. Um, but I got the training that really helped because I got to you know experience Savile Row tailoring. And I got to go to Zenya who made the ready-to-wear, which was – fascinating experience to see how Xenia delivers the level of quality they deliver. I mean, that was incredibly, incredibly interesting to spend a day in Navarro learning at the factory that produces Tom Ford and Zenia uh, Tom Ford and uh, Dunhill and Gucci and it was so that was a really interesting experience. You know, we went to Poland with Emmanuel Berg and I already knew emmanuel Burke from paul stewart but that was an interesting
1: operation so so that all of that kind of encouraged you even more to to do your own thing it, so, it sounds like you left <laughs> paul stewart went to dunhill and you yeah. were really got on the train of of starting your own business then
2: yeah well the customers started calling and were like uh we were told that they don't have our pattern anymore paul stewart it's like what do you mean? Well, yeah, they, they're not interested in selling us shirts anymore. They're, they they want to sell us some $100 made-to-measure shirt. Like, we don't want to buy that. So then it started becoming this, like, weekly thing of a new person reaching out to me or an old person reaching out to me and being like, uh, when are you going to do something? It's like, okay, all right. I mean, can I do this? Can I do this? I'm like, okay, I'm young enough I can take the risk. So... And I made the plunge pretty quickly, but...
1: Um, again, I'm going to say it again. You were at Paul Stewart for a long time. It yeah, about seven left. years. Yeah. yeah, seven years. And, you know, clearly, as as you've been saying, they're going in a different direction. You left. Did other people leave? Um, how do you feel about that new direction that they're going in? Oh, well, I'll of-
2: keep it very, <laughs> very
1: classy. Um, it,
2: listen... Um, I don't fault them because they have to do what they have to do to survive. They went from being, you know, I don't know, thirty or 60,000 square feet store, a huge store, as I'm sure you've – if you've been to the old store before. They're now less than one floor, the whole store now. They've downsized that much. So, I mean, you know, they had a customer dying off, (laughs) a customer who was – um you know, going to Savile Row or going to Italy. Um, They needed to do something different. So I understand that they needed to change. When I left, they were saying they wanted to go more high end. And one of my jobs at Paul Stewart was to bring in Oxford as a vendor. So I spent a lot of time with Oxford, which I have a lot of respect for Oxford clothes in Chicago. And it was difficult because, they wanted to sell the suit for like ten thousand dollars, custom with a fitting and everything. But it was like, well, that's more money than anywhere else. You know what? What are we trying to be, Bijan? I mean, what? <laughs> yeah, this is. I don't think this is gonna work in New York or anywhere for that matter. So what? Do you,
1: uh, so it was really the the price point that you think was gonna kill. Yeah, them?
2: and then when I left. It was you know kind of a bloodbath of people getting fired and uh, changing things, and they went really high end. And some customers told me that they started they removed the old made to measure program, the old custom program from Greenfield. They got rid of all of that, and they started doing the Oxford custom stuff. And they were they went to charge like ninety five hundred dollars or eighty. It was it was astronomical. And customers were like, I'll go to Oxford in that case. Why do I why do I want to buy Oxford at Paul Stewart? I'll go to Oxford, <laughs> you know. And, you know, Oxford's got some great people over there. I'm very friendly with the people at the store. So um, they're in good hands if they went over there, if they went to Oxford. But, yeah, customers were like – I mean, and that just – that ended the custom business. So – I mean, the purpose of the custom department that I was co-managing, co-directing at Paul Stewart was men would start out at Brooks Brothers or J Press because their dad would bring them there. And then maybe by 30, 35, they would go to Paul Stewart because they moved up the ladder. Yeah, they could wear side vents, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and braces. And then by the time they became managing director or partner, they were on Savile Row or they were at Caraceni or Rubinacci or Chiffinelli or Morty Sills or Bill Ferravanti or Len Logsdale or whoever it was. They were in the hands of a custom tailor. So it was very good thinking 12 years ago, 11 years ago from Paul Stewart to say, let's End that jump to Savile Row. When that guy hits forty or fifty, let's keep him here at Paul Stewart, and that worked very well while we
1: were there. Um, and obviously, well, so are they saying this as you, you meant you said while you're there? So is this is before you left that, that, that this sort of wave this is, is coming or no?
2: Well, this this is twenty ten to twenty sixteen. Okay, this is what things were like. We were we were able to close the bridge to Savile Row, basically, at Paul Stewart. And in meeting people from Savile Row over the years, they would always say, oh, yeah, we we get a lot of customers that used to shop at Paul Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> and one very famous proprietor of a store in Savile Row tells me, oh, yeah, that's where our best-dressed customers always come from. <laughs> so... It was a, it was a smart idea to try to keep those customers at Paul Stewart. It worked very well. Like I said, we were doing four million dollars a year, and um,
1: but your suits were not ten thousand dollars from
2: Austria. no the the, yeah. the suits were forty five hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a much, but, a much more palatable price point.
1: But at the same time, I think if I'm remembering correctly, I think I actually might have spoken with Chris Despis about this on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But he, I think he mentioned to me that Bill. Uh, Fioravanti was selling suits for $10,000. I mean, that was, he was really doing high volume at an oh, extremely yeah. high yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, Br- Bruce Boyer day. likes to say if you were charging 2000 Bill was charging $10,000. <laughs> um, but, you know, the kind of, and I have a few Fioravanti customers. You could spot them from a mile away because you can see the shoulder line coming at you. Yeah. Um, he dealt with a very particular, you know, guys who are like Rolls-Royce dealers and casino owners. <laughs> um, the, the guy who invented Pantone was a Ferravante customer who I've made clothes for, uh, Mr. Herbert, who is 95, I think. Um, you know, created Pantone, sold it for a few billion dollars, and obviously Pantone is the worldwide standard for color.
1: Yeah, I just saw actually that uh, uh, Vitali Barbaris Canonico came out with, mm-hmm. their, uh, with their coloring. I don't know what if it was a, almost like a turquoise. I forget what they called it exactly.
2: It was an interesting color. Yeah, it was I an don't,
1: interesting color.
2: I don't, it wasn't exactly the okay. most menswear color I've seen. I, I could say a nice women's suit. That's another business we're venturing into a little bit as women's. I'm making the very first suit for my fiance. She's being the guinea pig. Is she going to model it as well? I wouldn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> a tall Brazilian woman? I don't think anyone will mind. I don't know. Um, You're going to
1: have to check with your marketing director, though.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we're do- we- she's doing something different than what my samples were. So I went with a very men's sharp one-button peak lapel tuxedo. In Midnight Blue Mohair, that was kind of the mannequin sample I made for future advertisements, um, and what Caroline is having made is um, very different. It's it's more of a it's a fuller cut. It's long. It's um, it's a different direction. Drapey almost. Yeah, it's okay. it, it may be easier. <laughs> I don't know.
1: Less fittings needed, huh?
2: We'll see. Yeah. We'll, we'll see. We'll be fitting it in, I think, two weeks probably. We'll see how it goes. Um, but women's trousers we've done for a while now. We have a few women who are dedicated clients for women's trousers. Um, and we've done like a man's trouser with a smaller waistband, a shorter waistband. We'll use smaller hook and eyes. We'll use, you know, a nylon zipper instead of a heavy metal zipper. Um, and then we've done unconstructed women's trousers too. We did some in cashmere. for Is that like for... an
1: elastic waistband or?
2: No, it's, it's a, it is, there's no lining. All the seams are taped by hand with lining, um, like if you're doing a half line jacket, that kind of taping. Uh, I mean, it's it's couture, <laughs> as some clients have said. It's more handwork than their Chanel haute couture, so um, much more finesse than than a men's trouser,
1: maybe. A
2: lo- I would say less. Our our trousers are, you know, there. It's an English trouser, yeah, you know, thick waistband and. The big hook and eyes and everything, it's, it's a heavy waistband trouser. I, I love those kind of trousers compared to, say, Italian trousers, uh, which I'm not fond of, that look. Yeah, but for women, it, it involves a little bit more creativity. Their demands are different than men's. Um, and more
1: susceptible to fashion as well, right?
2: Exactly. And I heard—I don't remember who it was. It was a, it was a you know, very successful tailor who was talking about doing women's wear, and he said, you know, for the most part, we don't take new clients off the street for women's wear. It's usually the wives of our clients, the daughters of our clients, people like that, Um, because they need to understand, if they order a suit, they can't come back in four weeks and say, I'd really like this jacket to be six inches longer. And that's something you'll have in women's wear that you won't have in men's wear. You know, I don't think I've ever heard of a guy saying, can you make the suit into an overcoat? Yeah, no one's ever said that to me. But it, it is something you'd hear in women's wear, not all the time. Um, and I've had women who've been measured up, wives of customers, and I quote them a price. And it's, it's usually a little intimidating when they say, well, you know, I spoke to, and they'll mention, I don't know, I can't name any designers because I can't, I don't follow any of that stuff anymore, but you know, well, I spoke to Carl Lagerfeld and I know, I know he's dead. I know he's not around anymore, (laughs) but this is a few years ago. And then this woman would know Carl Lagerfeld. Well, you know, he'd make it for like $6,500. I'm like, well, (laughs) I have only one guy who can do this kind of work. So, you know, I can't really compete in price with Chanel. You know, it's th- I'm going to quote your price and it, it is what it is because it's a lot of work.
1: <laughs> well, and Chanel, I mean, think about all the infrastructure behind Chanel or any of the other houses, I mean. The bags are one thing, you know, those are,
2: those are nice. Uh, but listen, my fiance, when she goes into Bergdorf or Saks or Chanel or wherever and she looks at clothes, she's been taught by me to look at things differently. And she's told me, she says, well, I I love this blazer from Balmain or wherever it is. And she goes, you know, I could tell that it was fused. I'm like, yeah. And she's like, they wanted $3,500 for it. Can you believe it? And it was fused. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense because it's women's wear. There's not many women coming in saying, uh, is this fully canvassed? You know, or uh, is this pick stitching an AMF machine or by hand? That's not going to happen very often. So um, it's, uh, it's, it is a shame that women, for what they buy, do not get the same level of quality as men do. And that goes for ready-to-wear, too. I mean, men's ready-to-wear. You can find very high-quality manufacturing that does not exist in, like, any women's wear. You know, I can't, I mean, other than, well, Ketan makes women's wear. I don't. I, Adelini doesn't have ready-to-wear for women, um, but I think Brioni's had women's wear occasionally. Okay. Well, there you go. There, there's a company that knows what they're doing because they have hand tailoring experience. But you know, most of these huge conglomerate luxury businesses are not really going to put in the level of quality that women would want, and. They might not know that they want it, but if you speak to a woman who can afford $10,000 for a suit, she will convert automatically to wanting bespoke tailor. She will be like, "Well, that's better than what I'm buying, so that's what I want." Um, so I, I have a lot of respect for those women tailoring businesses that have popped up. There's, there's few of them and there's some men that do a great job with women's
1: wear. Well, I've and there's some also women getting into tailoring as well, you know, being cutters and tailors and yeah, there's quite a few now. So I th- I think more and more you'll probably see more women's tailoring just because the actual women tailors are getting into it more. So they're making stuff for themselves and then that kind of trickles down to other people.
2: Exactly. And sure there've been many tailoresses around for many years, but they haven't had the freedom to experiment with designs for themselves. So there's some great businesses I've seen in London. Um there's a new one, which the name I can't remember. Um but nice looking stuff. And Oh it could be the deck maybe? Yeah, that's it. That's the one. Um yeah you have people like Catherine Sargent who's a classically trained master tailor so she's gonna do a wonderful job. Um there's a tailor in Rome who uh, oh what is it um
1: Gaetano Alvisio uh, yeah yes
2: yeah uh fantastic Taylor I, he's done some women's stuff that's really yeah great I've shown Carol these pictures I'm like what What do you think she's like, oh, it's okay <laughs> I'm like would you would you wear this what do you what do you think of it uh let's see I changed that I changed that you know <laughs> so I've been trying to Get some feedback over what.
1: If you ever have a chance, I would definitely go and visit his. Uh, he has this shop, and you know he's probably forty tailors in there. And wow. to just think about the scale of that whole operation, where it's like they're really doing everything by hand, and it's just this concentration of tailoring and cutting and style. It's 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 just impressive to see because there's so few houses. I mean, think about the tailoring shops that do. Benchmade, um, at that scale. I mean, there's, you could probably count them on one hand yeah. at least. Oh, I that's... Do you know of any other that are, I mean, that are 40, 50 people doing Benchmade tailoring? I mean, I don't know if done, <laughs> does Dunhill do, I don't even, I'm not no, familiar.
2: They don't about. have that kind of size. I mean, they're, they're, they're bespoke businesses probably smaller than mine, but, um, and Savile Row, I mean, you know, so much of the business is, been split out of salvo row i mean i know people that work in those shops off the row because it's less expensive um you know people will ask me well why don't you make everything in 57th street well usually those are the same people that say why do you charge so much money and is it because of your rent and then i say to these people (laughs) well if you want all the work to be done on 57th street well you know why Bill Ferravanti charged $10,000? Well, yeah, that's partly the reason why.
1: Um, so well, it's- And now there's so many freelance tailors as well. I've had some on the podcast where they work out in the country. And then they also enjoy it too because they're kind of, you know, they're freelance. So they kind of structure their own days and they, they, they can work for multiple houses. And so a lot of freelancers are enjoying that as well.
2: Yeah, and I mean, the people who work with us, I mean, most of them are pretty much dedicated to us, you know, and I, there's no real conflicts of interest that trouble me at all. They like it. I mean, there was a time, early 2020, February 2020, we were about to sign a basement lease in Brooklyn, and we were going to put four tailors in a basement. First of all, after the flooding we had a few weeks ago in New York, That business would be illegal to have in a basement, I think. (laughs) It wouldn't be zoned anymore because of the flooding we had. And secondly, uh, signing a secondary lease in 2020, ouch. I mean, that would have killed me. Um, Yeah, so we were thinking of doing that because we just thought it would make production faster. Because it was one tailor who was farming out work to three people. And... They were doing particular jobs, whether it was finishing or it was fronts or it was pockets. Um, and he was like, know, yeah, you know, we would be able to cut down on production time probably in half easily by just having us all work together. Because if we needed to produce a suit in 10 days, we could do it if we're all together. We could all work on it at once. Um, and, yeah, thank goodness we didn't do that. I mean, it's a little bit more work and it's a little bit more of a headache to shuttle things around New York. And,
1: but. Well, and if you're not careful too, it sounds like with the shipping everywhere, I mean, you might, that might creep up on you as well. I don't know if you're shipping things like you work with Alex, who right now is out of the country. <laughs> that,
2: yeah, that that's the only time we have to worry about that. I okay. Mean, thankfully, everything else is done by me and my 10 year old Acura car. So. it's my responsibility to get things where they're going. So yeah, that, which is not something I did before the pandemic, which, you know, was using messengers before that, but yeah, now, now I'm responsible for moving things around, but we're for the most part, it's kind of tailor to tailor. When one person's finished with it, they give it to another person to finish it. They'll drive it over to them or take the subway over to them and give it to that person and then that finisher gives it to me um and you know the, the coat maker does the pressing work so just like in a re- regular satria it's going from its final pressing to the finisher and then to me ready for the customer um I, I have you know someone that does like alterations when people you know weight loss and things like that general alterations um we have a great service we use for that that works with some of the other bench tailors in New York and bespoke tailors in New York. Uh, also use the same people for those. That kind of stuff that is not worth your own time and resources to be working on those minor alterations. Um, and, you yeah, know, what's nice is you won't see a pressing machine there because they don't press. They iron. So that's... <laughs> that is one sign that things are being done the right way. As a, uh, a tailor who's a great friend of mine and mentor told me, I don't press. I iron and I train the fabric. I don't press. There's no pressing machine in my tailor shop. Only irons that are 20 pounds or heavier. <laughs> That's the one thing I contribute is I, I do press
1: a lot of things myself. I have... How do you do that? Do you have a, an iron at the...
2: I, I had these... I don't know what the name would be because I had them made in Paris for me. I spent a lot of money on having these two. We, we joke around and call them dinosaur eggs. <laughs> or someone who's Japanese told me they look like a manga cartoon, whatever that is. They are... I'll send you a picture of them. You'll have to. But they are these... They're three dimensional. I mean, it's hard to describe them. I have not seen them outside of Paris. I have seen people in Florence use something similar, but it's this egg-shaped board that's round, like the front of a coat, and you're able. They're different sizes. It's a piece of wood. It's wood, and then on the outside is like canvas and they're actually stitched in by like a saddle stitch i mean it's Uh. they they cost me about a thousand euros each to have made for me what and they were made by someone who makes this kind of stuff in paris um and uh yeah they took a few weeks to make and they shipped it to me it was in the early days of the pandemic and uh oh, i learned how to press on those
1: of taylor's buck it's probably what you might call in english a taylor's buck but i'm not 100 i've certain.
2: never seen them in the uk okay uh, in the uk i've seen people press mainly on um like shoulder boards yeah you know they'll have a big shoulder board and a small shoulder board but this is something it makes it a lot easier because you get the shape of the person it's sort of shaped like a human. So um You'll have to send cut, me photos
1: of
0: this.
2: Yeah, this is it just cuts down on your <laughs> uh, it cuts down on your ironing time a little bit, but you know, I will I mean for the most part the garments don't need to be pressed that seriously, but I've been trained by one of my coat makers on pressing and I should say ironing <laughs> well enough that if something needs to be ironed, I can do the job right there for the customer. Which I like to do and uh, you know, we don't use any steam I mean we, we really just the dry iron yeah. yeah dry iron will sp- you know, spray as I do on my own I use a piece of heavy fox flannel which someone might email you and say what why would you do that uh, I, I also have like different heavier shirt materials and things like that that I'll use Never a cheap material because I'm afraid something will happen. Um, I had a couple of close calls with scrap cloth that was scrap cloth for a reason, so you know use cloth to as a pressing cloth that is as good as the garment is so um yeah we'll we'll do that, and we'll spray the fabric, spray the pressing cloth
1: and then and then with water iron
2: it, yeah, yeah, yeah. but for the most part it's a dry process um. You know, I, I think the way – and I think we're many of us are guilty of steaming things that should not be steamed.
1: Yeah, you steam the crap out of it because you think it's going to get the wrinkles out and at the end exactly.
2: of Exactly. I mean I tell customers don't do any, any of that stuff on your own and don't send it to a cleaner. We have a pressing service. We have a sponge press service. I have people that mail their shirts across the country for us to wander and press ourselves, all that stuff. Um, which that alone is a great service. A lot of tailors don't advertise that enough to their customers that they'll do maintenance on their clothes. That's a great selling point for bespoke clothes is the fact that you can bring it to the guy who made it and I can give it to the coat maker or the trouser maker who made it and they'll do the repairs on it.
1: But it requires that dedication to the client, right? Because if you're just focused on cranking out suits, you're gonna say, screw it, I'm just gonna sell more suits, right You have to yeah,
2: you're just gonna sit it out to a dry cleaner or yeah. something like that for the guy. Um, yeah, so it's you know, that's all part of that that level of customer service. but I'll, I'll tell people when they're traveling or something, I said, yeah, if you want to steam the sleeves, Okay, you can get away with steaming the sleeves because those can wrinkle very badly and crease very badly if it's not packed correctly, or if the cloth is you know fairly fragile. Uh, but don't start steaming, you know, the bottom of the coat or the lapels because you know how many times have you seen?
1: <laughs> it's like it's just not what has to be done right, and then especially. Like, you know, people talk about how hard it is to press a shirt that has a, a floating canvas in it or, a, you know, a non-fused canvas. And it's the same sort of thing with when you get into men's sailor clothing is that you have these pieces and they're assembled in a certain way. And then, for example, like with your facings, you're going to have a certain amount of fullness that's put in there. And you just don't want to disturb it in the wrong way. You, you know, you want to do it the right way, and so that's why it's, important to to do exactly like what you're saying. Take it back to the guy who made it. Who knows best, right? Exactly. I had a
2: guy who (laughs) ordered a very crazy fabric, like a shadow stripes, cabal, super one millions kind of fabric. And uh, he gives it to me at a trunk show. And I'm looking at it and I said, why is the lapel like an inch narrower? Then when I delivered this and I look at the collar and the collar was like really tiny on the, I thought, Oh my God, what happened to this thing? I said, put, put it on this thing. This suit was like shrunken. And I was like, this. I'm like, what happened? He's like, Oh, I, I don't know. I gave it to my pilot when I landed in LA and the pilot took it to get dry cleaned for me because no, I no. got a stain on it. I'm like, Oh God. I'm like, What about the pant? What about the trousers? like, well, I kept the trouser because it was clean. I'm like, so if you're going to clean it, got to clean both just in case something happens. You don't want one thing to not match the other. Get them cleaned at the same time. That's, you know, good cleaner or bad cleaning. That's what you should do. You can't just clean one or the other if it's a suit. Um, But I said, please for what you paid for this garment, you can't clean things like that. It's just not going to work out well. I'm like, you own multiple private jets. You know that if they need to be serviced.
1: You're not dropping them off at your local mechanic. We know that. Yes,
2: exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the analogy that I always use to customers, and they either like love it or they want to punch me in the face, is if you drive a Rolls Royce or a Ferrari, whatever it is, and you have to get an oil change, you could take it to the mobile station and get it done. Or you could do it yourself. A lot of people change their own oil. Or you could take it to Rolls-Royce because it's a Rolls-Royce and you paid half a million dollars for it. And while they're changing the oil, they're going to make sure it's clean and they're going to check the engine and they're going to they're going to service it for free. Just as, you know, because it's a Rolls-Royce and you paid all that money for it as a service, they're going to do that. And they go, oh, you're right. I said well, if you spend $500 for a shirt or $5000 for a suit don't expect to pay $5 to clean the shirt and $20 to clean the suit expect to pay, you know, $15 to $30 to clean the shirt and, you know, $100 to $300 to clean the suit so uh, you just you know work out that math in your head and you'll realize just because it's really expensive, it's not going to clean itself. And it's also not going to mean that it's not hard to manage. So you have to bring in these other things. So, you know, cars are a good example. If the guy collects wine, you're going to say, well, if you collect wine, where are you going to put it? You're going to just leave it out in the kitchen and you go away and it gets up to 80 degrees in the house and you're going to let the wine sit in the heat? No. You're going to put it in a wine refrigerator a wine cellar to keep it at the right temperature and the right humidity. If you have cigars, they're going to be in a humidor in the right temperature, the right humidity level. It's the same kind of care you need to put into your clothing that you do with your home and all your other possessions. But for some reason, <laughs> I guess it's just the nature of men. Some men are more disorganized and you know, not as... Uh, clean as other men and uh, yeah sometimes they're a little bit like cavemen and they just don't think of these things but they'll do it for other things so yeah they need to be educated well that it. means and that they appreciate hope. it. exactly
1: they can be educated and, and yeah hopefully it's just hopefully most of these people are at the beginning of their journey with you and and they'll learn over <laughs> the time how to how to take care of your clone. yeah it's usually a beginner mistake
2: you know it's, it's not something that a seasoned customer is going to do. I mean, I have people bring me clothes with the smallest problems and say, you know, just take a look at it, fix the seam and press it for me. There is a lining slippage, you know, in the armhole, you know, right? That's always the you know, cufflink gets caught in one of the hand stitches in the, in the sleeve and, you know, rips the lining out. Um, I have one guy who who brings me his trousers after coming back from smoking cigars, and they look like Swiss cheese. <laughs> He's like, "So can you fix them?" I said, "Well, I counted about forty holes. So uh, let's do the math: forty times three hundred dollars per hole." I said, "What do you want to do? You want a new suit, or you want... Uh, okay, let's just replace the suit." I said, "Okay, listen, the suit's a year old. I'll give you a..." Give you a discount on it, <laughs> but it's uh, yeah you have you have a few of those circumstances. Almost
1: like the suits need to come with a warning.
2: Yeah, warning: a life of fine living may cause damage. And when people lose weight, you know, we I have an expression I picked up from someone: good for your body, bad for your clothes. Your your body will be happy you lost weight, but your clothing will be. Yeah, we'll we'll try our best,
1: but. Well, Paolo, I I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. I think we've covered a lot of interesting points and uh, probably could go on for a long time, even longer than this. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I don't know if you've noticed, but it's been two and a half hours. Oh, my goodness. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, I I think a lot of tailors have a lot of things that they can learn from you. You know, I don't think just being a tailor is everything, and I don't think just being a salesman is everything, right? You know, everybody needs to learn from each other. So I really appreciate you taking the time, Paolo. My pleasure. It's
2: been great.
0: Thank you for listening to Common Threads, produced by Artifacts. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or even better, if you'd simply share the show with a friend. Until next time.